Now, we haven't um, particularly mentioned it, actually, in our Sunday evenings, but uh, this is an exciting time in lots of ways for, for Morgamry Church. Um, over the summer, the, the elders had a day away, and we were thinking about well, what the Lord perhaps might want for us as a church, um, maybe something of our future, what we ought to be doing as a church. And I have to say, it was nothing particularly new that we came back with. The reality is it was just being better at the kind of church we want to be. So being more intentional in the way that we disciple people and grow people or, or train people or reach people. And not particularly rocket science, particularly new. And so we've been considering, some of you will know as a church, what that might look like. That might be planting starting a new church, a new congregation somewhere. It might be doing something with this building, making this building or a building like it a bit more useful for serving our community uh, with the gospel around us. And to be honest, as we think about those things, I don't know about you, but I find it pretty terrifying. Uh, intimidating is, is an understatement as you think about those, those big plans, those big things that will disrupt what it's like for us to be a church, to have family together. And so it's fascinating. I think what we'll see as we go through John's Gospel for these next few weeks, in our Sovereign God's kindness, I think will be very relevant words to us as where we are as a church at the moment, at this stage in our church's life, coming from the lips of Jesus. Now in John, the scene has changed somewhat. We're no longer public, but it's much more private teaching. Uh, that we'll be reading in and, and, and listening into, focused not on the crowds anymore, but in on the disciples, his closest followers. And notice that the, the tempo in John has slowed right down. Okay, we, we've rocketed, we've careered through John so far. Do you remember he's been setting up these signs for us, seeking to persuade us who Jesus is, why he's worth following. And so we've had about three years in 12 chapters. And now, in the next seven chapters, we've got about four days. John's wanting to teach us something different now. He's, he's changed his agenda. <clears throat> I think at this section in, in 13 and onwards, isn't so much teaching us why Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but it's more telling us something of what it might be to have life in his name. If you remember that bit in the end of John 20. This is real, nitty-gritty, daily Christian living. This is what it means to be a Christian, John is explaining to us. And what we'll see him doing as the weeks go by is Jesus is preparing his disciples for life without him. He's going to show them, he's going to teach them what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus when Jesus isn't there anymore, what it means to live for him when they've got a pretty intimidating and unknown future ahead of them. He's going to show them why it's going to be okay. And so when we ask the question, well, how can we impact East Oxford with the gospel of Christ? Well, Jesus will be speaking to us as well as we feel intimidated and more than a bit scared. Week by week, he's going to colour in what that might mean for us. We might feel anxious, clueless, daunted, just like those first disciples. And yet, just like them, we get to hear what Jesus says. So this week, John 13, I think Jesus says to us, to make any kind of an impact at all on the world, 
by the cross has to be our focus. It's got to be all about the cross. Next week, second half of John 13, we'll be thinking about what it means to to love one another, why authentic love amongst Christians is is God-like, is divine, and why that shows the world something of who God is. Then the week after, two weeks' time, we shall see that we're not alone. Jesus does not leave us. He, He leaves his Holy Spirit to come and fill Christians, to come and help Christians, to come and lead us and guide us. So, (coughs) come to the passage with me. Uh, John 13 and verse 1. And you see something of the context there. We see that we are entering the final straits. You see, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So it was the Passover It was Thursday, and in less than 24 hours, Jesus would be dead. And Jerusalem would have been crammed. It would have been hot and dusty and full of of pilgrims. The hustle and bustle of people come to Jerusalem to remember God rescuing his people from Egypt at the Passover. It would have been full of animals, animals to be sacrificed, lambs to be eaten by families as each family eats a lamb and remembers the Passover, remembers an animal dying in the place of a firstborn son. And so John has seamlessly set the agenda for us for these last few chapters in his Gospel. If you were around back in October, you might remember how John starts. John the Baptist, he points to Jesus and he cries out, Look, look the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And suddenly we find ourselves sat on a table where a lamb has been killed and is being eaten. And we see the true lamb of God amongst his people. Because out of the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem, crammed, packed, dusty, hot, into the upper room come the disciples with Jesus. Now, common courtesy and duty... Um, will have meant that their feet will have been washed. When a guest would sit down for a, wheel, for a meal, the host would come and would, and would wash their feet. And particularly at the Passover, it would have been uh, messier and muckier than usual, I take it, in Jerusalem with all the animals there. And it was a servant's job to wash feet. In fact, there was a pecking order to be observed. You would never wash the feet of somebody at your level or of somebody below you. In fact, it was the most menial task. It would be the most junior servant who would do foot washing. Jews, uh, Jewish masters would never ask Jewish servants to wash feet. And so as Jesus takes off his outer cloak, I take it, removing his status, and gets on his knees to wash his disciples' mucky feet, to say it would have been awkward would have been an understatement. And yet this passage is much more than just about foot washing. It's a passage, do you see it, verse 1, about Jesus' love. The, the incredible extent of his love. <clears throat> verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So what follows in the foot washing and beyond is the magnitude of his divine love. This is an enacted parable. This is... This is a picture of the cross. 
So if you're the kind of person who takes notes, then the first point then, verse 1 to 11, the cross is our means of cleansing. The cross is our means of cleansing. Which is why in verse 8, Jesus says, Peter has to be cleansed. He has to be cleaned. Let me read those verses again to us. I'll read from verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realise what I'm doing now, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. You see, this is so much more than just foot washing. Jesus isn't saying to Peter, well, with those mucky feet, you cannot be in my club. He's saying, he's saying no, no, to be one of mine, Peter, you must let me wash you. And of course it's partly that Peter can't get his head around Jesus' display of power. So, so in our world, if you're powerful, you flex your muscles from the, from the playground to the boardroom. Those who have power, they show it. They let others know it. <coughs> so Peter wants to literally put Jesus in his place, that is, back to the head of the table, up off your knees, and where you ought to be. And yet Jesus stoops, and he kneels, And he takes the position of a servant. Why does he do that? Well, verse 4. So. It's an important so. Why does Jesus stoop and serve? Well, verse 3 tells us. And it boils down to because of who he is. And because of what he will do. So do you see who he is? He is the one with all things under his feet. He is the one who has come from God. He is the one who has true power, not like the the so-called powerful of our day, the politicians and prime ministers and, and CEOs and the bullies in the playground and the bullies in the workplace. He is power personified. And so because of his true power, because of who he is, which we'll see is at the very heart of the Trinity, at the heart of who God is, he lays down his rights and he seeks to build others up. That's the kind of God we serve, a God who serves. If you were around in January, on our Sunday mornings, we saw it in Philippians 2. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. God, at the heart of who he is, is a, is a server. And so what's he going to do? Well, he's going to return to the Father. See it there in verse 3 as well? That is, his job is nearly done. His mission is nearly accomplished. His glory will truly be revealed because he will go to the cross. And we will see him ultimately serving his people. This is more than a story about washing feet. This is a story about the cross. A metaphor of what he will do. 
The cross is our means of cleansing. Now come with me onto the Thames of Oxford. And you are punting. It's the kind of thing you do if you're a tourist. Imagine it's quiet, it's relaxed. It's a graceful afternoon. You're ending up with pims and strawberries at Christchurch Meadows or a pint in the Vicky Arms. Others, or other some such luxury that the reality for me as a teenager was that I would end up drenched and muddy and a mess. As David Williams has recently shown us, perhaps we need disinfecting inside and out. And so you get to your front door and you've got muddy footprints and you look back and you see them, the footprints down, down the street. Brown oozes dripping from your ruined clothes and you ring the doorbell and mum or dad open the door and they've got their marigolds on and they've been cleaning the house the whole morning. They're sweating, it's been busy. Hoovers, window lean, all that kind of stuff is everywhere. The house is spick and it is span and it is perfect and they take one look at you and do they let you in? No chance. You're not coming in here covered in stuff like that on my clean carpet, thank you. And they take you to the back garden and they scrub you down with Ajax and bleach or whatever it is. And in John 13, we're not really talking about mud here. We're not really talking about dirty feet. Because before we can step into God's kingdom, we need something similar to happen to us. But it's not mud being washed off. Listen to some words from... King David, hundreds of years before Jesus. He's come before God and he's asking for cleansing. He's asking for for forgiveness. Because he's committed adultery. And David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin continues, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean wash me and I will be whiter than snow it's not mud we need cleansing from, it is transgression, iniquity sin, it's the profound me-centeredness in all that we do, doing things my way, not doing things God's way God's way and we are caked in it and we need to be washed It's through those things we we actively do, say, think that we ought not. It's the selfish action as we eat the last biscuit from the biscuit barrel, knowing full well it will mean that somebody else cannot have it. It's that gossip or that verbal assassination as we rip somebody apart when they're not around. It's the comparisons we make, it's the feeling of anger because we see somebody else doing better than us. Or the feeling of jealousy because God has blessed somebody else with more gifts than us or opportunities than us. Or it's the things that we don't do or say or think that we ought. It's not helping others or loving others. It's not encouraging folk who are down. It's not bringing the words that people need to hear. It's not being thankful for people. I say we are covered in mud. And we need Jesus to clean us. Of course the problem is that you and I learn to live with a bit of sin. I'm told it's rather like wearing contact lenses. It's incredibly uncomfortable at first. You're completely aware of them all the time. 
But after a while, you just don't notice them anymore. And we just get used to them. And sin, well, maybe it's uncomfortable at first. Maybe we're aware of it for a bit. It's painful, it's awkward. And then we just get used to it. And we don't notice it. And we just think it's to be expected. Or maybe we think, well, God is so good. God is so good and so kind. Can't he just make an exception on this one? If he's so good, can't he just ignore that one? And yet you see, it's because he is so good, because he is so kind, that Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. He can't just make an exception on that one, because to do that would mean that he wasn't perfect, or pure, or just, or good. Because we think God should just let us come traipsing into the house with mud dripping all over us. And so Jesus bends down on his knees in humility, towel around his waist, flannel and soap in his hands, and God's king's king washes in between the toes of his disciples. And he's given them a picture of what he will go on and do at the cross. What he's doing now at the Passover meal shows them what he will be doing then. They're remembering God's rescue from Egypt now. And he will go on and rescue them from sin then. I have to say as we go past, if you're here and you aren't a Christian, let me encourage you please to come and make, or let Jesus make you clean. To be washed by him. You know your heart. You know what you're like. You know that you're caked in it. And those things that that you know that you would be so ashamed if anyone else did, those things you, you wish you never got involved with, and Jesus says, let me wash those away. Let me make you clean. He, he will go on and die on the cross. He will be the true Passover lamb. He will take his father's just and righteous anger on himself instead of being directed at you. And Jesus says, come and let me wash you. Come and find forgiveness. Come and find life. But Peter struggles. Peter cannot cope with a kneeling saviour. And do you see what the problem is? Do you see why Jesus is just so unwavering on this? If, if Peter can't accept his feet being washed here, then what's going to happen when the cross comes? He's going to struggle even more when we get to the cross. It seems to me it's a natural reaction to grace in lots of ways. It highlights our pride. It's the pride that says, well, I don't need it. Oh, I'm okay, I can do it myself, thank you. I'll be alright, thank you Jesus. And so we, we do, 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 we, we do so much stuff. We, we recycle and we give money to charity and we help people. And all along it's just us trying to wash ourselves and make us clean. Just trying to balance the books with God. We think if we do, then we'll get rid of the mud. But, but we can't do, it. it's all been done done at the cross. We simply need the humility to allow him to wash us, to forgive us. But there's Peter, verse 9. Jumps in with both feet as he always does. 
Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath only need to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. What's going on there? Well, it seems like the metaphor has expanded a bit. What he seems to be saying is a Christian is clean. That is, I take it Jesus has washed them clean. And yet they need ongoing cleansing. Feet need to be washed. So he's saying, well, there's a bath that's happened once for all when you become a Christian. We've been forgiven by Jesus. We're his now. We're part of the family. And yet you go on picking up dirt along the way. In a sense, it's right and it's good for us to come and have that dealt with again. This is, I take it, your experience day by day if you're a Christian. You're forgiven, you're clean, but then you do that thing, or you say that thing, or you think that thing, and you pick up dirt along the way. And so we daily pray as Jesus taught, forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Or with John in his letter, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. So we're clean already, but there's this daily dirt. And so we keep going back to the cross. We keep seeking forgiveness. We need the humble heart that keeps coming back to the cross. That keeps seeking forgiveness. That lets our feet go on being washed by Jesus. We keep short accounts with God. Let me encourage you, if you're here and you're a Christian, and we're going to be singing in a bit, there'll be opportunity for you to do that, to come and to confess. Perhaps in the silence after the talk or through some of the words of the songs. But come and let him him wash your feet afresh to get rid of the dirt we've picked up. So our first point, and by far our longest point, if you're getting worried... Our first point is the cross is our means of cleansing. Our second point is the cross is our model for community. Verse 14 to 17. So the cross is essential. It's where we go to find forgiveness. And yet then we see that the cross is our example. It's where we look to find how we live. Verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Jesus says, you want to know how to treat other Christians? Well, look at the cross. Look at the cross. Because you have been served by Jesus, so go and serve one another. Now, of course, lots of people think it's the other way around. So they say, well, being a Christian, it's all about keeping your nose clean, isn't it? It's all about being nice, and by doing that, you think you can keep God off your back, And he's pleased with you. And they read verses like verse 14. And they think, well, look, Christians, they're just goody-goodies. They're those who want to to wash one another's feet. They're trying to make a grumpy God happy with them. And they say, well, or maybe this is you, they say, well, God's a bit like my grumpy headmaster. And so what I'll do is I'll give him an apple. 
and he will be happy with me. He'll be a bit less grumpy at least. And yet they've got it the wrong way around. It's not that Jesus, Jesus doesn't wash them because they first washed him, because they've earned it in some way. No, 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 that's back to front. They serve others because he's already served them. And that is great news. It means that we can't earn or deserve or buy or store up our forgiveness from him. It's all about grace. It's all about grace. It's what he's done rather than what we do. And yet the problem is, if you're a Christian, you will find that hard to keep in your head. And so you know you're clean, but you don't always remember it fully. And so we think, well, as I go to church and I give and I help on this rotor and I love that unlovable person and I read my Bible, then those are the kind of things that I can do to keep God on side with me. That they're the apple for the teacher to keep him happy. It's almost like they're little bars of soap. And we kind of know we're clean, but we're there scrubbing ourselves to try and make ourselves a bit more clean. But it doesn't work. We're forgiven. We're cleansed already. Someone very helpfully told me recently that we are pipes and not springs. That is, we're simply passing on the love that we've received already. We serve because we've been served by the supreme server. We love because we've been loved by the supreme lover. And as we do that, as we, as we love, and as we serve, and as you put yourself out, and as you love people in a costly way, so the cross is our model for community. As you make a dinner for that family who are struggling, as you, as you babysit for that couple so they can go out, as you give sacrificially and generously from your from your bank, from your time. So the cross is being your model for community. In fact, as you take their, their pain and their hardship onto yourself, there's this exchange going on. That there's almost a substitution happening. There's an American pastor that some of you will know, I've got a fan of called Tim Keller, who says this. It's a long quote, but I'm going to read it because I think it's really helpful. He says this, he says, there are a lot of wounded people out there, they are emotionally sinking, they're hurting, and they desperately need to be loved. And when they're with you, you want to look at your watch and make a graceful exit, because listening to them with all their problems can be gruelling, can be exhausting to be a friend to an emotionally damaged person. He says the only way they're going to start filling up emotionally is if somebody loves them. And the only way to love them is to let yourself be emotionally drained. Some of your your fullness is going to have to go into them. And you have to empty out to some degree. If you hold on to your emotional comfort and simply avoid those people, they will sink. The only way to love them is through a substitutionary sacrifice. All real, life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. And Jesus says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. 
I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And of course, though our, our culture says, well, freedom is all about doing what pleases me, doing what I want to do when I want to do it. And Jesus says, serve. Serve because it makes you truly human. Because you're made in the image of God, just as Christ humbly knelt and washed, and just as he willingly gave up his life. So we see true power. We see humility. Jesus says, as you serve, that makes you truly human, not less than human. The cross is our model for community. So how are we going to reach Oxford, East Oxford for Christ? How are we going to better be the kind of church that we think God has called us to be? Well, we cannot move away from the cross. We, we start there. It's where we begin. It's where we humbly go to Christ for cleansing, for forgiveness, for a relationship with the God who made us. It's where we go to be washed. And it's our daily model as well, as we, as we love and as we serve each other. It's our model for community. And that kind of cross-focused, counter-cultural community is what we need to be. And it's just a kind of cross-focused, counter-cultural community that will reach Oxford for Christ.